Our gospel lesson this morning is from the gospel according to Luke, the 10th chapter, verses 38 through 42. Hear now the word of God. Now, as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. If you heard me a couple of weeks ago, I I made mention of the general rules, which are um, just a quick history lesson. If you already heard this, you can just sing along with me if you'd like. But a couple of in the long, long ago, in the early days of the Methodist movement, uh, John Wesley was the founder of the movement received a letter from some of the early Methodists, and they said to him, you've been instructing us and encouraging us to live a holier life. How how do we do that, though? What should we do? And he gave them three rules. First, by doing no harm. Second, by doing good. And thirdly, by attending upon all the ordinances of God. And he listed some things that they should do in order to attend to the ordinances of God. And I would remind you, if you heard it before, but uh, Bishop Reuben Job some years ago wrote a book called Three Simple Rules in which he expands on this and offers a vision of how to live a life that reflects the love of God by, to, to use Bishop Job's paraphrase, by to do no harm, do good, and stay in love with God. And it's the third of these, stay in love with God, that is relevant to this morning's scripture reading. We have here a story of Mary and Martha. Now, this may be a story with which you're familiar, but it's one that we hear about a lot when people talk about sort of doing versus being. Here we have Mary and Martha, two sisters. And if we think of the role that each sister is playing as Jesus and his disciples have gathered in their home, Martha is often kind of, we hear Jesus correcting Martha in this passage of Scripture, and, and it's tempting for us to, to look, to discourage what Martha is doing. But I don't want to condemn Martha. I want us to first, for, for actually, for what she's doing, maybe the spirit with which she's doing it. If we look at Martha, Jesus is in her home. She calls him Lord Which means she has a notion of who he is. That she's not one of the people who is yet unconverted. She's not someone who's, well, this guy from Galilee is here and he's saying some interesting things. So I'll invite him over to hear them. No, she calls him Lord. She's already a believer. So let that sink in for a minute. Jesus is sitting in your living room in Florence this afternoon. What are you going to do? You'll probably, you know, tidy up the newspapers. You'd probably make sure there was something to eat and that it was top notch. You'd probably make sure that everything was just perfect. You might put the dog in the yard. You might do all the things you would do when not just company, but distinguished company comes to visit. Martha is doing these things. 
What she's doing is being an excellent host. She is doing exactly what she should be doing. And then she looks over and she sees her sister, Mary. And she looks at Mary and she says, in her mind, in my mind, she goes there, she goes again. Here I am, working my fingers to the bone to take care of Jesus and his people who were here. And she's just sitting there, not doing anything. And I imagine that Martha's in the kitchen and she's doing something and she sticks her head out. Yep, there's still Mary. I imagine she does this three or four times and about the time she just can't take it anymore. And she says to Jesus, Lord, would you please tell this lazy sister of mine to get up and help me? And then we see Jesus correcting her and saying Mary has chosen the better part. He's not condemning Martha for what she's doing because what Martha's doing is 100% correct. She started out serving Jesus. She started out doing work to help Jesus. But somewhere along the way, the work became the goal in and of itself. The work became the object of her focus, not the one for whom she was trying to work. Mary isn't commended here for being lazy. She's being commended here for being present to Jesus. Martha was there. Martha was working, but the work in and of itself became the goal. Jesus might as well have not been there. Mary's not commended for being lazy. She's commended for being present with Jesus. And Martha is not corrected for what she's doing. She's being corrected because the spirit and the reason for which she was doing it is no longer there. Martha is in the presence of Jesus, but she wasn't present With him. She wasn't doing the things. She was doing the things that can help us stay in love with God. But she wasn't doing them. In and of themselves. Here we see. This idea of presence. With Jesus. Of being present to God. Martha was in the presence of Jesus. In that she was occupying the same space as he was. But she was not spiritually present to him. Bishop Job, in the book I mentioned earlier, Three Simple Rules, writes, Living in the presence of and harmony with the living God who was made known in Jesus Christ and is our constant companion in the Holy Spirit is to live life from the inside out. It's to find our moral direction, our wisdom, our courage, our strength to faithfully follow the one who authors us, calls us, sustains us, and sends us into the world as witnesses who daily practice the way of living with Jesus. Spiritual disciplines keep us in the healing, redeeming presence and power of God that forms and transforms each of us more and more into the image of the one we seek to follow. Bishop Job here is using a scary word for most of us, discipline. But when he's talking about disciplines, he's not talking about Things that are corrective. He's not talking using it as a synonym for punishment. Instead he's talking about doing the things that help us stay in love with God. Not that those things are magical or miraculous in and of themselves. But it reminds us that when we do certain things. It is a way of making ourselves present to the God who is already present. He continues, we may name our spiritual disciplines differently, but we too must find our way of living and practicing those disciplines that will keep us in love with God. 
practices that will keep us positioned in such a way that we may hear and be responsive to God's slightest whisper of direction and receive God's promised presence and power every day and in every situation. It's in these practices that we learn to hear and respond to God's direction. He goes on to suggest that there's some of these spiritual exercises, some of these disciplines that we can follow, and they differ for those of us. Some of us may have some ways that help us connect with God more than others. But there are some basics, like a daily time of prayer, a reflective reading of Scripture, regular participation in Christian community, including worshiping on Sunday morning, acts of goodness and mercy, And taking opportunities to share with others our experience of God. What we've learned so that they might be encouraged and enabled to follow Jesus. The staying in love with God, I think, requires two things that I've already started talking about. And that's presence and practice. Presence and practice. And we achieve these through spiritual exercises. We may think of those spiritual exercises to use a working definition. They are things that help us stay in love with the God who loves us. And if we are fully present, we practice spiritual exercises. And if we're practicing spiritual exercises, we are able to make ourselves fully present to God. Let's talk about presence for a minute. God is always present. As I've said, but spiritual exercises, these things we can do that help us make ourselves present to the God who's always present with us. You may have learned in Sunday school when you got the trick question, when the teacher asked you, where is God? And you were supposed to say heaven. And she wanted you to say heaven so that she could say, well, he is in heaven, but God is everywhere. And God is everywhere. We can never be anywhere that we are not In the presence of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is constantly with us. But that doesn't mean we're always paying attention. That doesn't mean that we are present. There is a difference between being present with someone and being present with them. We can occupy the same space with someone, but that doesn't mean we're being present with them. You've probably seen the meme of the four people sitting around a a dinner table with their noses stuck in the phone. They're around a table together. There's food in front of them, but they're not present with each other, are they? They're paying attention to something else. We have to practice presence, making ourselves present to God. When I think about this, I'm reminded of when I was a teenager, we had a youth retreat where the uh, Wesley Foundation, the student ministry from Georgia Southern University, came to our church and, and led this retreat. And the speaker one night said, how many of you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend? You don't have to raise your hand. Just answer it in your head, he said. Now, young people, there was a time where if we wanted to talk to somebody, we actually had to pick up a phone and talk to them. There was no texting. There was nothing like that. So I don't know if it was your experience, but it was my experience that if you had somebody in your life, you picked up the phone and you talked to them. Maybe you even had an appointed hour that you talked to them. Maybe it was a a sort of part of your daily or probably nightly routine that you would pick up the phone and talk to your significant other. Well, he said, well, how many of you that have somebody in your life, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, how many of you talk every night on the phone? 
How many of you talk more or less the same time every night on the phone? He said, and if you'll do that for another human being, why wouldn't you do that with your relationship with God? Think about it. Whether you're married or have a significant other, think about the importance of intentional time together, those date nights, those times that are having conversations that are beyond just the maintenance conversation of who has to be where, when. Think about the, the significance of going out of your way when somebody, when to feel somebody doing something nice for you, whether it's a gift or preparing supper or washing the car. There's a difference. If you've ever watched children, you know there's a difference between letting the children play and playing with children. Or when you go to, the, there's a reason my mother keeps encouraging me to come visit her. It's because she wants to see me and I want to see her. And it's in the traveling over there that it makes a difference. We have to go do these things that make ourselves present to the people with whom we're in relationship. A relationship that isn't nurtured won't thrive. It's true for our human relationships and it's true for our relationship with God. And it's not God, it's not God's fault if that relationship doesn't thrive because He loves us. He loves us with a love that's perfect. He loves us with a love that doesn't waver. But our love can waver. Our love is imperfect. And when we neglect our relationship with God, we're the worst for it. If we want to be good at something, like making ourselves present to the God who's always present with us, we have to practice it. We have to work at it, which brings us to the second one. We've talked about presence, and now we've talked about practice. How do we practice that presence? Think of it as physical conditioning. The more you do something, the better you become at it. Running, for example. If you want to run a marathon, you first need to be able to run a mile. Nobody gets up one day and runs 26.2 miles. You train for it. You work for it. You build up to it. And and then it becomes so that you are able to do it. We have a friend that some years ago she had a beach house and invited several couples for the weekend and, and we were there and on Saturday morning we woke up and she was gone. The lights were on, someone had made coffee, somebody had put out things to eat for breakfast and, and, and it was pretty early-ish we felt like, but she just wasn't there. And this was long enough ago that you didn't have your cell phone always with you but, but and, and hers was laying on the kitchen counter And just about the time we got ready to worry, here she comes running in the driveway. And we said, so you went running this morning? Yeah. Even as late as we were up last night? Yeah. I run every morning. We said, well, she said, I said, well, how far did you run? She goes, it wasn't a big run today. It was a shorter run. I just ran 13 miles before breakfast, before a cup of coffee, before anything. And we were all just kind of jaws hit the floor that somebody could run 13 miles before we were even out of bed, really. But that was part of who she was. She was training for a marathon. She needed to run 13 miles. If she didn't run a half marathon on Saturday, she wouldn't be able to run the full marathon later down the road. It became a part of who she was. She told us that if she didn't run, she kind of got a depressed feeling. 
It was a mental health thing as much as a physical health thing. It became part of who she was. But before she could run 13 miles or a marathon, she first had to have at some point in her life she ran a one mile. I'm reminded of a man who you may have heard of, Pistol Pete Maravich, basketball player with strong South Carolina connections. He went to Daniel High School in Central. His father coached basketball at a nearby orange-themed university. And for whatever reason, his dad got fired from basketball, so he played at LSU. But while at LSU, Pistol Pete Maravich averaged 44.2 points per game in his varsity career. And that still is the, and he still is the NCAA Division I all-time leading scorer. Now, for those of you who don't follow basketball, that's impressive. And what I'm about to say is going to make it more impressive. Because he was playing in a time when freshmen weren't allowed to play varsity. So he made, he became the all-time leading scorer in only three years. In a time when there was no three-point line or shot clock. So it makes it even more impressive. If you don't follow sports, it's, 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 it's cool, trust me. So he, but you ask people who knew Pistol Pete Maravich in high school and earlier, and they would say that you never saw him without a basketball. Whether it was basketball season or not, you would just see him around town with the basketball. People tell stories of seeing him sitting in the movie theater in Clemson, sitting on a, on a well, I just said it, I'm sorry, sitting on the, 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 the side of the move in the aisle, aisle seat, so he could dribble while he watched the movie. People have stories of watching him riding down the street with someone driving and his dribbling a basketball out the passenger window. People tell stories of watching him walk down the railroad tracks, doing like the, the, the rail, like a balance beam, dribbling from railroad tie to railroad tie. Always had a basketball in his hand. And because of that, He's one of the greatest ball handlers of all time and all these years later still holds the Division I all-time scoring record. Sure, to be as good as he was, you had to be born with talent, but it wasn't only talent. It was the talent and the constant working and honing that skill. Presence and practice work together. It's not just what you do and being there, but it's the practice and work of what you do to make yourself in the moment, to make yourself present to what's going on then in that moment. When we apply that kind of idea to our spiritual lives and to the things we do as Christians, I think it comes to the idea of, you know, sometimes I don't feel like praying, we might say to ourselves. But we should pray anyway. Sometimes the Bible's hard to understand. We don't really know what it's saying. But we should read it anyway. Sometimes it's a whole lot easier on Sunday morning to turn the alarm off and roll over. Or to get a second cup of coffee and watch the TV or read the paper. But we should go to worship anyway. Sometimes... The spiritual exercises that make us present to God are difficult to do, but we must keep doing them. And in the doing, we make ourselves present to God. And having made ourselves present to God, we are better in the process. It's a give and a take. It goes back and forth. 
the practices that we do that connect us to God and then being fed by God's grace because we've been intentional about being present to him who's always present with us. And we have to keep doing these things. We don't get to a point that we just say, okay, I've, I've gone to church a lot, I've prayed a lot, I know my Bible, I don't have to keep doing these basic things. We do have to keep doing those same basic things over and over and over again if we want to stay connected with God. We have to keep after those same spiritual practices if we want to remain present to God who's present with us. You know, if you go to any Little League practice, Little League baseball practice, and you watch what the kids are doing, they're taking fly balls and grounders, they're taking batting practice, they're throwing the ball around. Seven or eight years old, that's what they're doing, that's how they learn the game. But you go to the pregame at any major league park, and do you know what the guys out there are doing? They're taking pop-ups and grounders. They're taking batting practice. They're throwing the ball around. The same thing that the children are doing, the professionals are doing. You don't ever outgrow the basics. You keep doing the things that make you better over and over again, and they continue to keep you in prime shape. For Christians, the same applies to us. Yes, we do keep doing the same things, but in the doing of them, we stay connected to God because they are things that help us connect with God. Staying in love with God is the primary issue of a faithful life. We have to foster that relationship with God. Think about it. Relationships more than anything else are what define us. Our relationship with God is the most important thing that defines us. If you ask somebody to tell you about themselves, or if you have to tell somebody about yourself, what are the kind of things you would say? You might say that you were married or that you had kids. You know, I heard a joke that when two Southerners meet, the first thing they want to know is where are you from and who are your people? But we define ourselves in terms of those relationships. And I think that's especially true for South Carolinians. And I, I joke when two Georgian, two people from Georgia meet, I saw, they say, you know, now where are you from? And you say the name of the little town. And they say, and the other person says, now what's that near? And the other person, where are you from? I'm from, now what's that near? Whereas when two South Carolinians meet, you say, so where are you from? And they say where they're from. Say, Do you know such and so? And you fill in the blank. When I started college in South Carolina, it was interesting to me that everybody seemed to know somebody who knew everybody. But if you think about that, when we meet somebody for the first time, we want to find a connection with them, don't we? Often don't we talk to someone until we find some connection, some way to find something we have in common. Even in that new stage of meeting someone for the first time, we want to discover a relationship and find relationship. That's how we think of ourselves. That's how we define ourselves in terms oftentimes of our relationships to other people. And God is our foundational relationship, even if we don't know it. God loved us from the moment we came into the world. God loved you from the moment you came into the world, even before you knew it. Even if you didn't know it for a long, long time, God loved you nevertheless. And so a relationship was there whether you wanted to participate in it or not. 
And staying in love with God is our participating in the relationship. So that love that God is offering us and, and pouring out on us, we are able to receive and feel and know. So what are you doing to stay in love with God? To nurture that foundational relationship with God? What are your practices that help you experience God's presence? Maybe that's a question you need help answering. And and I'd love to talk with you about that if it is. Please reach out to any of us uh, at church. And we'd love to talk to you about that. But more than anything else here, that we are called to those practices. That because God loves us and is present with us, we are called to do the things that open us to his presence. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, we love you for you first loved us. And Lord, we are grateful. And God, we pray that you inspire us and empower us to do the things that open us to your power and your presence. God, that we might seek those spiritual exercises, those practices that that allow us to feel your presence, to know your grace and your love. Lord, we ask it all in Christ Jesus' holy name. Amen.